0: Philemon, verse 1, is where we turn this morning, and I will turn there as well. Philemon chapter 1 mentioned or referred to the author of this little letter, briefest of Paul's letters, the most personal, perhaps, of his letters in the New Testament, as we have it written and recorded for us and canonized in our New Testament scriptures, of course. And it's written to a man that we don't know much about, except for as he's described here in this little letter. A man named Philemon, we would pronounce in English Philemon, we would say in in Greek, if we want to do that, I'll just call him Philemon, because that's how we're familiar with it. But he is mentioned here in verse 2 as the recipient of this letter. In the New Testament, or in the first century era, the the common means of, or or process, or, or standard of writing a letter is different to what we do. Now we would put our name at the bottom of the letter, at the end, right? You know, sincerely, yours, or in Christ, or blessings, or whatever, put your name at the bottom. In the first century, it came at the beginning. Uh, So he mentions Paul, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, verse 1. And, of course, Timothy, our brother. We looked at Paul's life, Timothy's life, how useful they were to advance the gospel, how useful they were to each other, and the encouragement that they had one to another in the gospel and the hardships that they faced, the imprisonments, the beatings, the stonings, all all the stuff that that, uh, they endured for the sake of the gospel. We see then at the end of verse one, this mention of the recipient of the letter. Now that follows our or, 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 or modern usage of that follows first century and that we identify who we're writing to here. And so he mentions two Philemon, two Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker philemon is only mentioned here in this verse he's mentioned in the title i suppose of the letter to philemon and so his name appears twice in the greek text and yet in in uh, the rest of the scripture we don't know anything about him he is mentioned here as a beloved brother and fellow worker maybe your translation has beloved and fellow worker but these are two different ideas he is a beloved something, beloved brother, beloved person, and he is a co-worker or fellow worker of Paul. To be beloved of Paul, to have Paul say that of you, is restricted to, to uh, well, actually, he's not restricted very, very much at all. He, he just loved all sorts of people. We even saw it in John. He says, uh, dear friends or beloved or or dear ones. Um, my father-in-law would use that term quite a few times, dear ones, and yet the the Uh, The affection that Paul had for his co-workers, for even those that he's speaking to, is real. It's not a made-up thing. It's not a contrived thing. Um, It's not like forced kind of affection. It is a real uh, joy, a real love that Paul had for this man. Philemon, As he discusses with other people, he talked about Epiphras, who was a beloved fellow slave back in Colossians 1, verse 7. Or Tychicus, also a beloved brother in Colossians 4. Onesimus. Onesimus, oh, that gets into the whole reason why Paul is writing. This former slave, or runaway slave. He's not a former slave. He's still a slave, but he ran away. And now Paul says he's our faithful and beloved brother. Also, Paul described Luke as the beloved physician. And then uh, we see in verse 15 of Philemon, that Philemon should receive Onesimus back uh, as a no longer, verse 16, no longer as a slave, but a beloved brother. So that affection that is there. And sometimes, I believe some people have said it this way, you don't have to, to like everybody all the time, but you certainly do have to love everybody. You think, well, how can I do that? How can I love other people? Well, it, it goes, and it, just an example of marriage, you know, my wife is being mean to me. So I don't think I can love her because right, husbands are commanded to love. I don't think I can love her. Well, you want to be disobedient to God's word? Husbands, love your wives. I don't think I'm getting divorced. I just can't stand this sin anymore. Well, okay. Well, she's still a Christian. Well, yeah, she's still a Christian, but I just can't live with her. Well, you're supposed to love the brothers and sisters, love the church, love Christians. Well, on second thought, I don't think she is a Christian anymore. I think she's not. A, I don't know. Okay. Um, love all people. Well, but she's my enemy. I can't love my enemy. Love your enemy and pray for th- So the point is you can't get out of loving people. Now liking is a different story, and having that, that heart knit together with people and having that mutual um you know cooperation and, and encouraging that edification going on, sometimes that is that is limited. And yet love ought to rule the day. It's amazing, you know, Jesus said it this way, where your heart is, there your treasure or where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Reverse that. So what you think about, what you spend your time on, what you make your plannings about, where you are investing your attention, that's where your heart is going to settle too. And not just your heart, like the the heart, you know, lovey Valentine stuff, but the heart, the the volition, the thinking, the rationality, the will uh, of moving. And then, of course, the affections that go after that, the, the affections of emotions and stuff. Anyway, the point being, Paul regarded Philemon as a beloved person, just uh, one who was a, a, a dear man to him. And you think, well, how, did, how do we not know about Philemon elsewhere apart from this letter? Are you kidding? We have a letter to Philemon. I mean, how many people do we have a letter from Paul to so-and-so? He received a letter, and now we're reading it 2,000 years later. This is a beloved brother and fellow worker of Paul. And we realize that he possibly came to faith, we, we see it We know a lot about Philemon, not because of what's written elsewhere, but because what's written here. As we work through this letter, we'll see how Paul regards him and the faith and the love and the hope and the service and the sacrifice. And and knowing that Philemon will do what is required of him in forgiving and restoring this this, uh, wayward slave and so forth. We'll get into that idea now, but just to realize and revel in the fact that Paul... Regarded this man as, as very beloved, very close to him in his work. Probably Philemon, possibly anyway, came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ while Paul was ministering in Ephesus, just about 100 miles from Colossae, where he's living at that time. And Paul was there ministering from, what do we say, 53 to 56 AD, 53 to 56, that three-year period. And it says that the, in the course of that, Acts 19, I believe, records it, that all Asia... Heard the gospel all Asia that would include Laodicea, Hierapolis, Colossae, and other churches as well, and so it could be that while Paul was there in Ephesus, that Philemon, as it says here, was a fellow worker, came to faith and then joined right into it, kind of like Paul did. Remember when he heard the gospel? I, mean, I heard the gospel previously, I'm sure, but when he was converted in Acts nine and on the way to Damascus, and then was in Damascus and he was saved, the, the scales fell off his eyes. And what did he start doing? preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah, after all. Went to the synagogues and other places. Philemon probably is very similar. Was he Jewish? Was he not Jewish? We don't know. Philemon is a common Greek name, but uh, we have no indication whether, whether uh, what his ethnicity or religiosity was, or religion, I should say, was. And yet, Paul says, when you're in Christ, Philemon, you are just a fellow worker. You joined with me so many times. You were so uh, active in, in serving and meeting my needs m- for myself, but also the church and the churches around in uh, Western Asia. And I regard you as a fellow worker, as a beloved person. We'll hear more about Philemon as we go along. But we meet another person in verse 2, this lady, apfia Apphia, Apphia. You'd pronounce the, the the p and the ph separate. Those are two separate letters. So, Apfia, our sister, and you, or maybe your translations, if you have King James or New King James, it says the beloved Apfia. Um, there are some variant uh, textual variants in that regard. Probably the the better received. Well, actually, it's not the received text because that's the King James basis. But, and if you were to uh, look at other um, manuscripts, you'd probably uh, affirm what it says here: our sister. Yeah, the beloved is kind of a duplication of what we read about with Philemon back in verse one. Our beloved and then Aphi, our beloved. No, it's probably our sister. In any event, there is a word, by the way, for brother, and there's a word for sister. And usually, when we have in the text brothers, it's brothers. And there, are, I think there's only one place where it says brothers and sisters. Here it says sister. And the point is, what are you getting at? What do you what? <laughs> The point is a lot of newer translations expand that identification. Brothers and sisters, is that evil? If it just says brothers, it includes brothers and sisters. But the point is it says brothers. Are we going to make everything gender neutral now? For example, Psalm 1, blessed is the brother or sister, the man or woman who does not walk in the count. Are we going to gender neutrify all the scripture. Let's just translate it, and if we need to interpret it, we need to apply it differently. Let's just go that way. But the scripture does uh, is very clear. There are different words to say it. It says here, Apfia is our sister. Who is Apfia? Well, in in proximity, so close in proximity to this mention of Philemon, could be his wife, could be someone who, because of the nature of the letter. Again, this is this is Paul writing a letter on behalf of a runaway slave from Philemon's household. If Apphia is the wife, the mother, the, the matriarch of that household, she has a vested interest also in this Onesimus who wronged her personally, who ran away with her goods, you know, the household goods, but somehow stole and, and betrayed a trust. And you think, well, how can slaves and masters, how can that be a trustworthy thing? We'll get into that. And we've looked at it a little bit already in Colossians 4 about slavery in the first century world. And yet, she would have had a personal interest in this whole situation. And so Paul addresses her. I'm not just writing to Philemon. I'm also writing to, to Apthia because she, she wants to know about this Onesimus. She thinks that she's been wronged and, and she needs to follow Philemon's lead. Philemon, I'm appealing to you specifically, but your wife also is involved in this because of the nature of, of uh, the household uh, relationships and so forth. And so he he mentions her, although I kind of sideline both Apphia and this next name, Archippus, Archippus, that is mentioned here at the end of verse 2. Archippus is the possibly a son. It's only mentioned here and in Colossians 4 and verse 17, of course, when Paul says to the church there, say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you've received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. Some would say, by the way, I don't agree with it necessarily, but some would say that the ministry, when we looked at that, remember we looked at what is that ministry that Paul or that Archippus received in the Lord? What was that ministry? Was that task? It could have been, some would suggest, of Receiving Onesimus and reinstalling him or, or bringing him back into the household, Philemon's household. It could be that. I don't know if that's really the case because Tychicus was there. Remember carrying the letter and Tychicus was there to, to do that. Archippus probably had a, a ministry maybe in the church in Laodicea. I won't belabor all that. We looked at that back in, in as we studied in Colossians 4. But it could be that he's the son of philemon and if we, if our assumption is correct, that Apia is the mama, the wife, then you know the son of philemon and Apia. In any case, Archippus is listed as a fellow soldier. Now, any young men out here, you you just want to be the the young soldier, the fellow soldier, right? The the one who you know has the big sword and the and the battle axe and the and the armor and the shield and and all all that kind of stuff, and you think. Um, there's a reason you're carrying that stuff, right? It's not just for shows, not just for looks, not just for toys. Those are weapons of warfare. Paul says, Archibus, you are my fellow soldier. There's war going on in that first century world. And lest we think, oh, I'm so glad the wars are over. They're not over. We are at war. We are we are not at our ease. We are, we are. Um, well, as this hymn goes, am I a soldier of the cross? I follow the Lamb. I'm conflating a couple of the verses, but it says, must I be carried on beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? Do you remember that hymn at all? Am I a soldier of the cross? Paul regarded Archippus as a soldier. Archippus, by the way, it means, uh, you know these words, right? Um, arche or arc, archos. Uh, it's not like old, like archaeology. It's arc like the head. Uh, polyar What's the word? Oligarchy, you know that, right? Oligarchy means the rule by a few. Uh, Archibus has that word, rule, and it has what's he ru- what's he ruling over? The hippos? Anything? Like, hippos? No, the, the hippos, the the horses. You know the word hippodrome, right? The horse arena, hippodrome. So he's the ruler of the of the uh, horses somehow, and maybe he is. Maybe that's just his name. In any event, he had both a namesake for for not just races but horses. I mean, they're like tanks. They're like Uh, troop transporters they're like heavy machinery horses were in that first century world and so perhaps paul is kind of playing on that idea hey you have horses and you're in relation to horses but you are my fellow soldier those two ideas perhaps coming together this warfare is not something that we need to take up swords and clubs and spears and and uh, and those kind of things although sometimes that is necessary think of peter when he you know jesus said uh, or peter said i have a sword and there's there's one here and he says that's enough and so while that goes on in any event our warfare is not that way our warfare is not fleshly or carnal we don't need to to uh, you know organize for example in the crusade time which was so misguided and so wicked in so so many respects uh we don't need to do that no our weapons are spiritual our weapons are the word we sang it right in that last hymn about uh, we have an unfinished task, and the, what is that task? To make Christ known, to speak, speak the gospel. That is so revolutionary, so, as the Latin word, contra mundum, against the world. The, the word of Christ is contrary to what the world wants, but it is that warfare, it is that key element that we have. In Ephesians 6, of course, you know the the armor of God, and what is the offensive weapon? The Word of God, the Sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, that is our offensive weapon. That's what we use. That's what we we wield in the battles we have. We don't need to be going punching people in the nose and kicking their shins and and saying all kind of nasty things about people. No, we need to speak the truth. We need to be very careful to honor Christ, to honor His Word, even when it comes to the question, "What is a woman?" There's, there's a book that talks about that. Hey, let's look at the book, not the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, the Bible. God said, male and female, I created them. There's, there's all aspects of this. What's, in a, what's a, a woman? An adult female that God has made in his own image. And so we rejoice in that definition. We rejoice in the definition of marriage. It's between one man, one woman. This lifelong covenantal companionship. We, I mean, that is contrary to the world. You, you say that in, in whatever social media platform you prefer, and you will be attacked and vociferously canceled and whatever else and just excoriated for all these things. But it's God's truth. We are waging warfare. We are soldiering for Christ by speaking the truth. Archippus was speaking the truth. What was that ministry he had? don't know. Something related to the churches there, perhaps. But he was regarded by Paul as a fellow soldier, one who uh, did not serve as a soldier at his own expense. You know, so many times Paul used athletic imagery. In 1 Corinthians 9, he uses that. 2 Timothy Two, I think he also uses that. he uses that athletic imagery so many different times. And, and running for the running the race, Hebrews twelve uses that as well. But running the race and, and trying to get a, a perishable crown, you know, we we don't do that. We run for an imperishable reward from God Himself, and we long for that. But we we see not just athletic imagery; we see military or um, you know, soldiery kind of stuff. And you think, why does Paul know so much about soldiers? Does he ever serve in military duty? No. But you realize how long, how many years of his life he was chained to a Roman soldier. When he's describing there in Ephesians six, uh, the, how can I, how can I portray this this, this conflict we have uh, between the powers of light and the powers of darkness? And he's looking over to his guy. Hey, we need to take up the breastplate of righteousness. We need to take the the the, uh, the shield of faith, the belt of of um, Truth, right, and and the feet. Oh, look at his feet, shod with the preparation of the gospel, the, the gospel of peace, and and uh, the helmet of salvation. And oh, that sword, not the long one, that short one, that Micaerus, Micaerus, Micaerus blade, the short one that can get in there and do its thing. He's looking over to his next door neighbor, and, and or because yeah, they changed soldiers every now and again, he was constantly aware of these things, and probably asked for stories. And you know, hey, how's it going being a soldier? How's it going being a centurion or a a a, uh, a guard in the household of Nero right in rome what 's that like? Tell me about this situation and so he had all kind of first hand information about war. Uh, by the way, a lot of slaves came in to Roman uh, slavery through war through being prisoners of war and and that kind of thing or were born into slavery as well. by the way, this is free. Do you realize that in Virginia in the in the eighteen hundreds I think it came in the class last night with, with, uh, with Ben, but also reading another book about Thomas Jefferson, you realize that it was illegal for masters of slaves in Virginia to free their slaves. It was in the books. They, they couldn't. Even if they didn't want slaves at all, if they inherited them, for example, George Washington or Thomas Jefferson inherited slaves, they couldn't manumit them. They couldn't release them, make them free, because It's illegal. Now, can they do other things to do it? Yes. That's why so many of the founding fathers were against slavery, but they had rules going back to the colonial times that were on the books that were that uh, had informed so many things. So the battle against slavery in America was not as uh, difficult, I suppose, in terms of a mindset. So many people did not like the institution, and yet uh, it continued for a legal reason and other reasons as well. But eventually, of course, that that came to an end, and we're very thankful for that uh, resolution, speaking of which, this is also Juneteenth, right? Juneteenth, historic, this is still in the parenthesis. Juneteenth is when the the Emancipation emancipation Proclamation, the the announcing of the freedom for all slaves in the the South, was announced in Galveston, Texas, the last bastion, I suppose, uh, of uh, slavery in that, era. And so all the slaves were therefore, and ever after free. Coming back to the text, Paul regarded Archippus as a fellow soldier, and he said, you need to wage war. You need to wage war with other people, but make sure that you wage war in yourself first. James 4 says, what is that source of conflicts, or quarrels and conflicts among you, in our, you know, within people, but also in yourselves? Is not that that upsetness, is that not unrest in your There is not the source, your pleasures that wage war in your members. There's a battle going on. It's not just out there. It is inside of us. If we hope and expect and desire to have victory out there, where does this need to start? In ourselves, so that we would not have, as we read in 1 John, have that desire for what the world offers, what the world celebrates, the the wickedness, the deception, the lies, the the trickeriness of of the world. No, you wage war in yourself first. You have victory in your own uh, desires, your own pleasures, he says here. Make sure that you seek the pleasure that God provides. At his right hand are pleasures, evermore everlasting pleasures, and you're going to settle for that over there, like Esau? Settle for that mess of pottage? What's that about? What? What are you going after that? That's a temporary thing, and you're forsaking everything for that—your birthright and the blessing that came to you because of who you are as the firstborn son for one meal. And how often do we do that? We say, "God, I love you. I love you," but I'm going to go after this just for a quick minute and find this whatever sin as my salvation or as my at least a, a joy or, or some measure. And Paul says, "No, you wage war." James says, you wage war in yourselves first before you think that you can go out and wage war against other people. Make sure that you are self-controlled, sober-minded, and alert. You'll be eaten up. If you are trying to wage war, you're trying to you know, parley, and all this with truth, of course, not with weapons and, and whatever, but you're trying to wage war with other people, you may be useful to some degree in speaking the truth because the power comes in the truth, not in our presentation of it, but I tell you what, why would you... Go out and wage war in, in measures and in matters of things that are not ruling in your life already. You're trying to make the word of God apply to other people. How about you start with yourself? You make sure that you are conquering those, those, as Peter says, First Peter 2.11, as sojourners and exiles. I urge you to abstain from fleshly lusts, lusts which wage war against the soul. This is serious business. We often, again, as I mentioned, think of war as outside of us. It's with other people. Those people are offending God. They're offending me, and they're speaking truth, and they're trampling on Christ. It's true. Well, what are you doing? What are you doing with the words that you're saying, the attitudes you have, with the, the, uh, the way that you're spending your time and your money and your resources? What are you doing? Is any different from them? They are openly atheistic and hating God. And what are do you doing in your own life? You're you're a, a practical atheist. You're a Christian, but you're not living for God's glory. Make sure that you wage war in yourself first. Archippus is regarded as a fellow soldier. He is one who is faithfully fulfilling the task. Did he fail? Often, I'm sure. If he's a person like me, he did. And yet, God is so gracious. Paul here at the end of the verse two returns. He he mentioned kind of in parentheses to Apphia and to Archippus, but he comes back and says, "And to the church in your house." Some people would say your house refers to Archippus. I don't I don't think it's that. I don't think that's the case. I think that just carrying that thought a little bit, if Archippus is ministering in the church in Laodicea, we already saw in Colossians four when Paul addresses the church in Laodicea and to Apphia, our sister. Ap, or excuse me. And to Nympha. Nympha, our sister, was housing or hosting that church in her house. The Laodicean church met in Nympha's house. It's not Archippus' house. It's not Philemon or Apheus. The church that is meeting in Philemon's house is probably that church in Colossae, meeting in his house. And you think, wait a minute, he had a church in the house? How in the world does that happen? Well, as I mentioned, I think last time that we were together in that text, we saw that uh, the church is not the building so much. It, you know, the old Sunday school thing that I can't remember because I'm old. Uh, <clears throat> the, the church is not the building, right? It's the people and the steeple and all that kind of stuff. You can do it. There were no evidences of designated formal church buildings until the third no, the fourth century. Let me remind my, my uh, dates here. The third century, where we saw or found in the plain of, this is Colossae right here, by the way, that, uh, that mound that is there. We also see, I forgot I had these pictures, Apphia was dressed as a Roman, kind of a wealthy uh, Roman uh, lady. Here is uh, Archippus, or a picture of a guy who, who uh, could have been Archippus. Here's a soldier all dressed up. There's a soldier all dressed up with his helmet and his brush plate and all this kind of thing. But then we have this This gathering space. This isn't in Laodicea or Colossae or even Ephesus. This was in, um, actually, this is Laodicea right here. This is a a large area within a a building that could have been used as a gathering space. Here is one that shows wow, those first century homes, they had had pretty nice spaces. And a lot of people could gather there. Fifty, hundred people could gather in this space. And you saw there's a little, a pool there in the middle for refreshing times and uh, catching the rain and and so forth. But there is the the aspect or the evidence that churches, people, not the buildings, the people met in in homes, buildings of that of that time. This is uh, perhaps a spacious area that, that could have been used. A lot of mosaics, mosaic is a little uh, colored stone or a stone with a color in it that were made into little small shapes and then put into a design on the floor. The earliest known securely datable place that we can identify as a designated church building is in a place in far eastern modern day Syria uh, on the Euphrates River. It's called a place called Dura Europus, uh, the Fortress of Europe. It was named after when Peter, or Peter excuse me, Alexander the Great was was just running right across to, the, to India. He did a lot of things, and so he was naming different places after namesakes and whatever, Europe, goes, goes back to the idea. We know that this is a securely datable place because in 250, 256, the city was destroyed. AD, of course, AD 256. It was destroyed by some um, some people coming in. Uh, yeah, Sassanian Persians, I think, was the name of the of the people. The point is, one of the things that archaeologists love the most about a site is if there are wars, if there are earthquakes, some kind of catastrophe, because usually if if people have time to evacuate, they'll take their good stuff. But if there is a catastrophe where it's run for your lives kind of thing or you're going to be crushed by the weight of something, then the stuff is still there. The pots, the, the utensils, the, the necklaces, the jewelry, all that's what people love to see. The, the pottery, because it's pottery, the, the base and the, and the handle and the spout that really helps us to date things. Or coins, obviously, with a date on it and so forth. Archaeologists love conflagration, they love catastrophe because of buries stuff well in that advancing army the romans this is a roman outpost roman roman city they said we need to defend against these opposing people and so we're going to bury we're going to build a rampart and and bury to so secure to barricade the wall and they buried this house that was had been fashioned into a a, a church meeting place and so we see on the on the on this side, so my left, your right, the right side, a baptistry. And they go, oh, a baptistry. Well, that's that's official. That's, you wouldn't have something like that in a normal house. No, they they made that. They made a baptistry. They, they removed in probably the 240s, so just 10 year or so years prior to its being destroyed or, or um, covered over, a, a wall was removed to make a larger uh, auditorium or gathering space in this in this facility so a courtyard you can see where that kind of tripod looking thing that's a courtyard that that connected it so the baptistry on the right the the uh, meeting hall on the left, and this was the first church again securely dated 256, uh, 8256. but you know we're not even talking about the point there is that we have churches they met in homes until about this time where they had a designated meeting space. You think, oh, this this church thing. It says the church in your house. Church is an English word. It comes, you can see how it's derived from all the old Scottish Kirk, uh, coming from the old Saxon, the old English, and eventually from the Greek. And yet nowhere in the Greek New Testament, anyway, do we have this word kuriakos related to the church. We have it related to two things. It's used twice in the scripture. One is talking about the Lord's day, Revelation chapter 1, I think it is. And it talks about that, that uh, the Lord's day. And then we have it mentioning the Lord's supper. So uh, 1 Corinthians 11, I think, is where that is mentioned. We see that that is, that is uh, the only place where that is, where that places is used we have it better in spanish you know spanish iglesia is that word that comes right from latin ecclesia which comes from the greek ecclesia and that is the image or that is the word that describes used 100 times in the old testament used 114 times in the new testament talking about different things talking about different aspects of of uh of life, both religious, obviously, but more generally, the just uh, an assembly of people. Even more specifically, the assembly of the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. It's used in Deuteronomy several times. This church, this ecclesia, is just an assembly. It's just a gathering. It has nothing to do with the New Testament church. It's just a congregation, an assembly. Somebody Now, a lot of people would make the point, oh, this is, a, you know, it means a called out one, now, uh, which it does. Ecclesia comes from the word put these words together to call out somebody but it it doesn't it's not used that way it's not used that way in the Old Testament or New Testament. It typically just means somebody, a group of people who are gathered together for some purpose. That could be a, a religious event, like in Acts 7.38. It says the congregation of Israel in the wilderness. It could be an assembly for a socio-political purpose, like when the assembly of the Ephesian citizens got together, and they were saying, you know, down, you know, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Oh, that was an assembly. That was not a church, but it was an assembly for sure. Uh, Acts 19 talks about that. And he even talks about the disorderly gathering, the disorderly church. If you want to be consistent in that, a lot of times we see this word referred to, referring to rather the universal church. Well, that's not how he's using it here, right? He's talking about the church in your house. That's not everybody, but a lot of times, twenty-four times, maybe. In the New Testament, we we see this word church as the totality of all Christians, for example, or or specifically the church in a specific area. For example, Acts nine and verse thirty-one says, "The church throughout all Judea." And Galilee, Samaria. So it's not just one congregation; it's a group of congregations together, or the churches of Asia Minor. We read, right, or heard, recited to us Revelation two and three a lot of times. Twenty times the the word uh, church or ecclesia appears in Revelation. Most of the times, nineteen out of twenty, there in in uh, the first uh, three chapters. One time in Revelation 22. But the universal church, right? Christ died for the church. Christ is the one who uh, has appointed officers, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers in the church, and we we read about the church of God, we read about all these things, the household of God, the church is the household of God, and so that's the universal church, everybody together. But we see more than any other time, 86 times, I think, of of the times this word ecclesia is used in the New Testament, refers to a local congregation, a congregation of, of Christians that implies this interacting membership. We see it big... First of all, Matthew chapter 18, we see it many times in Acts, a lot of times in Acts, 23 times in Acts total, uh, just the word not always as as the individual church, but we see that, that uh, a specific local church governed, ruled, shepherded by elders, pastors, overseers, perhaps also deacons that are come and assist, but has a, a local body, a designated body, for example, when when uh, the scripture says in Acts twenty or Acts two rather that three thousand people were added to the church in that day, wow, that's 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 a lot of people, uh, you, that's that's tremendous. And what are we going to do with all these people? Well, you read by Acts uh, Acts uh, six that there was an issue that certain people were being overlooked. The widows, the Hellenistic widows, were being overlooked, and so there was an issue that they had to solve, and they did. But they had a membership, they had a a, a, a ministry, a mutual uh, commitment to one another, and that that was maintained it was it was uh, managed it was uh, shepherded by men godly men who could do these things but that is the predominant use of this word church and that's where we come back to philemon had a church a designated local body was philemon one of the elders in the church don't know could be could be i don't know were there others most likely yes paul's practice was to appoint multiple elders in each for each congregation well we see that there are many images of church of the church throughout Scripture. These are just a handful of them, just a smattering of them. The church is the body of Christ, it's the temple of God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Pillar and ground of the truth. It is the bride or the wife of Christ. It's God's house. It's the salt of the earth, the light of the world. The brotherhood. The church is the brotherhood of those believers. It's Christians. The church is made of Christians. The church is made of fellow citizens with the saints. It is, uh, the, we are ambassadors. We are the people of God. We are Abraham's sons, Galatians talks about. Them. We are the tabernacle of David, the place that, that uh, David's uh, intention re- resides. We are the remnant. We are God's elect. We're faithful in Christ Jesus. We're new creation. We are a new man, the new man joined, bringing Jew and Gentile together. We're disciples, and if you don't mind, we are slaves. Slaves of God, slaves of Christ, slaves of righteousness. And so all these images, all these pictures of, of what we can see about the church. Paul says the church is important. I'm recognizing not just you, Philemon, Aphea, and, and Archippus, but the whole church, the church that meets in your house. Again, under, underscoring the fact that Philemon's probably a wealthy man, has some you know, man of means, as we would say. And he was there using that wealth, using those resources that God had entrusted to him for the caring of the congregation. The ministering of needs and ministering of, of uh, the like-mindedness, the, the teaching, the exhortation in Scripture, the, the, the uh, authentic relationships we talk about, the ministry of the Word of God through authentic relationships is discussed there. We are in process as a congregation of finalizing, finally finalizing our, our bylaws and getting a membership and an eldership and, and these things in order. And one of those things really relates to what is a church all about and, and, and what is about membership and what it, what is, how, do, how does that relate and what are these elders, these pastors. Let me just briefly, and conclusion, by the way, can briefly highlight a few aspects of our statement of faith or our, our what we teach doctrine document that says we teach— that those who place their faith in Jesus Christ are immediately placed by the Holy Spirit into one united spiritual body, which is the church, the bride of Christ, of which Christ is the head. So it's we come into the church, the general church, in that way through faith in Christ. And that we are united. This says, you can read it along. Uh, I'm not going to read all these, all these words. But we are united in that church. That we have our birthday on the day of Pentecost, back in Acts 2, and the end date, the expiry date, the expiration date of the church uh, in in this world, anyway, is the rapture the church when Christ comes for those who are uh, alive, those who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him, also with those who are New Testament believers, and and, and that, of course, 1 Thessalonians 4. We teach that the church is a unique spiritual organism. We're not like the local um, uh, Moose Lodge or or Lions Club or... or, um, Rotary club or or some kind of a social group. We're not, we're not like that. This is a spiritual group for which Christ died. This is the people of God. It is it is made up of born again believers. One of the key aspects of of a Baptistic faith is to have a regenerate membership. Not just anybody can join the church. You need to give clear evidence of a confession of faith. Are you really born again? Are you born again right now? And we see that the church is distinct from Israel. Jewish people can be part of the. Of the church, of course, but the the promises that God made, the covenant God made with Israel, a lot of those aspects have yet to be fulfilled, and we believe they will be fulfilled. It's different to what we see in the church. We see that there is a an establishment and a continuity of local churches. So not just we're part of the, the big church, and that's enough for me. You talk to a lot of people like that. I'm a Christian. You know, I'm I'm part of the church, but it's the church that. I don't go to. I'm part of I don't need to go, I don't need to go anywhere, honey, cuz I'm with Jesus and me, we're together. Good. You should be in that church. But you should also be in a local church. You should be part of uh, you should be part of people that know and expect you. And they look for you on a Sunday morning or whenever the church gathers. You are under the shepherding care of godly men who care for your souls, who look out for your souls. You should be part of that congregation. We see that this is clearly defined in the New Testament scriptures and excuse me and that the members of the one spiritual body so the big universal church are directed to associate themselves together in local assemblies local churches very important things the church is the head of the or excuse me Christ is the head of the church and he has given each of us gifts that we ought to use in the service and the building up of other people in the congregation we see that god has provided men to lead and care for the church elders pastors overseers and deacons all of which must meet biblical qualifications we teach that these are leaders they lead and rule, not as authoritative, not as those who who you oh, know it's my way, or the highway, you better kneel and bow down to me. No, we rule as servants of Christ and have his authority. How does Christ rule his church? Oh, so graciously, also oh, winsomely, and yet with truth, with absolute truth and with with discipline. And the congregation is to submit to Christ, submit to its leaders, listen to them. We teach the importance of Uh, discipleship, mutual accountability of all believers to each other, as well as the need for discipline of sitting members uh, in the congregation. Uh, And one or two last ones. We teach that the purpose of the church is to glorify God by building itself up. The world is not going to build up the church. The world is animated against the church, so hostile toward it, and yet we are called to build up one another. Doesn't mean we build buildings. Buildings can be useful for our purposes. You know, renovating spaces can be useful, but we build one other up. That's our intention. Forget the building. We can meet in the parking lot. We can meet in the field. It doesn't matter where it is, but the building up of the people is what's important. We do it by instruction, keeping the ordinances, baptism, Lord's Supper, and by advancing and communicating the gospel to the entire world. Lastly here, we, we teach the calling of all saints to the work of service. It's not just the, the, uh, the pastors, elders, overseers, or those deacons, right? Deacon means a servant, a minister. It's all of us have the opportunity and the responsibility of serving God and serving one another and growing thereby. Through love, we, we serve one another through the working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love, Ephesians 4.16. Philemon was so useful. To the church, Archippus, also Apfia, in some respect, also being a hostess of the church that met there. And we see that that is so tremendous. I'll let you read verse 3. I, sa- I think it says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a good greeting. That's a good salutation. And we want to give that as well. That grace that comes from God, that peace grace is the means of which we receive a salvation and peace is a result of that salvation well let us pray our father in heaven we're grateful for your truth what's what life-changing truth it is and yet we neglect it so often we say oh, i'm not going to read the scriptures today i guess or i well, I came to the end of the day i didn't read the scriptures please help us not to have days like that or to to realize and then to read your word please help us to focus and meditate our our minds upon you help us to grow Ourselves, please help us to wage war against those desires that that are waging war against us, that we would be your people, that we would grow in respect to our salvation and that we would help one another grow. We thank you for the example of Paul, Timothy, Philemon, Apphia, Archippus, others that are mentioned in Scripture that were faithful to you and who worked and used the gifts that you entrusted them, even in Philemon, Apphia's example of their house, having the church meet in their house and how wonderful that was. And so we pray that you'd help us to to use what you've entrusted to us as a steward. We're not owners of it. We're just managers of your property. Please help us to do that for your sake, for the advancing of the church. And please do help us to be righteous in our lives. Please help us to have that righteousness that comes by faith, but also the righteousness that comes by obedience, obeying your word and forsaking wickedness and sin and deception deception and the, the foolishness that is associated with it. We're only fooling ourselves trying to find satisfaction apart from Christ. We pray that we'd be content in Him, and not just content, but rejoicing, exulting in Him. Thank you again for each one who's here. Please bless, save, sanctify for your sake. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.